0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Now, all week we've heard about Islamophobia, and specifically about Motion 103 that uh, was introduced by a liberal member of parliament from uh, Mississauga, Ikra Khalid, and freedom of expression in this country which is enshrined in the Constitution and is our right and the only the only rider as far as freedom of expression is concerned is that the Supreme Court ruled that hate speech is not protected by the freedom of expression uh, constitutional right so when it comes to Islamophobia what is it to you and I read the definition as accepted by a group of Arab nations and I got this from uh, the Muslim Jewish Dialogue Toronto organization and Professor uh, David Netkin and uh, Mr. Tariq Khan, the co-chairs of the Dialogue Toronto, uh, will be joining us tomorrow. And they included in a letter that they sent to, um, to the prime minister, they included this. Islamophobia, while not defined by M103, has a working definition of which has been adopted by a collection of Arab states. And I quote directly, they determined that any criticism of Islam should be called Islamophobia and should be haram or forbidden and punished by death. I'm just quoting David Nitkin and Hari Khan, who are quoting a number of Arab states. I have a question for you. Do you feel as though, if you're white, do you feel that you're being freely accused of being a racist? We remember uh, Kathleen Wynne, the Premier of Ontario, when there were questions about whether or not proper vetting was being done for refugee claimants from Syria, uh, and national polling showed 67% of Canadians weren't comfortable with what the federal government was doing and weren't assured that the vetting was done being done properly. The Premier of Ontario said, what we can't give in to, I think, is allowing security to mask racism. That's the danger, and that somehow talking about security. Allows us to tap into that racist vein when that isn't who we are. She was immediately challenged by the uh, former premier of British Columbia, who himself is an immigrant to Canada. I'm just looking for his, for the uh, quote from Ujol de Desange, but uh, he had essentially said, "Premier, are you calling me a racist?" And uh, and and I believe you have, and that's unfair to uh, Canadians. I'll find the exact quote. By de ange in a minute, or two. I've got so much, I've got information overload in here right now. So, I got to thinking about this, and, and Premier Reardon calling Ontarians really bad actors on GHG emissions, while her government is responsible for hundreds of thousands of people in the province not being able to pay their electricity bills and having their power cut off. So, we're supposed to be quiet. We're not supposed to challenge the ruling class and the elites. When Justin Trudeau talks about wanting to help the middle class, what I hear is a man assigning himself membership in the upper ruling class. And when I hear Wynne and uh, even Quebec Premier Couillard accuse Canadians who simply question whether the federal government is properly vetting refugee claimants from a Middle East war zone, I hear a self-important school trustee who found herself in the premier's office berating and insulting the people she trolled for votes. And particularly when I hear accusations of racism, I have to ask myself, who is the ruling class accusing of being a racist? And I suspect they're pointing their finger squarely at white Canadians. As in the advertising for government jobs, some government jobs, white males need not apply, or Caucasians need not apply. We've talked about those situations and why not. These white males, these Caucasians, are Canadians, and when Canadian governments close job competitions to these white Canadians, who's the racist? So this week, Parliament heard the private member's motion of Ikra Khalid, the Liberal MP for Mississauga-Arendale, M103, which condemns Islamophobia and will call on Parliament to develop a national strategy to oppose it. So what is Islamophobia, and, and are you one? And again, quoting the uh, Muslim-Jewish Dialogue Toronto, Professor David Nitkin and Mr. Tariq Khan, uh, they say that uh, a collection of Arab states have adopted this working definition of Islamophobia, they determined that any criticism of Islam should be called Islamophobia and should be forbidden and punished by death. No one's suggesting that Yikri Khan is sugge- wants that to be M-103, but it would have helped if she had provided a definition with her motion. The Liberals and the NDP support M103, and the Conservative Party offer an amended version which I read and which seemed to me to be twisted like a pretzel in its own political correctness. And if you're wondering if I'm stepping over any lines constitutionally or according to the Charter, no, I'm not, because freedom of expression is enshrined in our Constitution, with one exception. I pointed that out earlier. If anyone believes that I'm practicing hate speech here, then please buy a dictionary. And here's my question to you. Are you a racist? Are you a xenophobe or are you tired of being labeled by politicians with an agenda? In the next 90 seconds, evaluate yourself, please, and your beliefs and feelings and answer the question, are you a racist? Are you anti-Muslim? Are you a white supremacist? Or are the politicians who accuse you of being racist, even if they do so slyly, Are the politicians who accuse you of being racist if you question the vetting of refugee claimants from the Middle East, are the politicians, in fact, the racists? Who's got the guts to take this one on? All right, Steve is in Toronto. Steve, are you a racist? Are you a xenophobe? Or are you you tired of being labeled by politicians with an agenda? Good afternoon, Ryan. Yes, sir. Good afternoon Um, to you.
1: uh, I guess in light of today's politically collective uh, correct climate i would probably be considered a racist why because i feel that there's a trend towards what i would call reverse racism where the pendulum has swung so far to the left in protecting all rights of everybody but say a white canadian and we're being told that we have to go to extreme lengths to accommodate everybody we can't say a bad thing about anybody I think it's gotten almost to the point, And you wonder why there's a populist movement throughout Europe and, and the United States. This is what's
0: happening. You know, I've heard the same argument made by callers who identify themselves as being Muslim, Hindu, Sikh, Jews. There's the same sense of frustration. And part of the reason for that, I really believe, when you talk about the populist movement, part of that I really believe is because there is so little dialogue. There's there's a lot of instruction there's a lot of uh, guilt assigning taking place, and there's a lot of finger pointing taking place, and uh, and and I understand it when when if, if you know if if you're a Caucasian looking for a job, and there's a government job that's advertised, and it says essentially whites need not apply, you're not going to take that very well, nor should you. Uh,
1: I'm I'm a big believer that. Anybody in society should have equal opportunities. Exactly. I have no no problem about that. Exactly. But you should be judged on your merits, not on the color of your skin, not on your religion, nothing like that.
0: Steve, when we have a prime minister who insists on repeating time and again that diversity is Canada's strength, then let it be Canada's strength.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean there's a lot of there's a lot of women out there that are highly qualified, I have no doubt about that. There's a lot of minorities that are. But when you basically create uh, what I call, I guess, what's called affirmative action, you are creating reverse racism.
0: Well, you know, when Bob Ray was the premier of the province of Ontario, there was uh, all of the talk about, uh, you know, the workplace makeup had to be reflective of the, of the uh, part of the society where the business did business. So you had to have a specific um, ethnic and religious uh, and racial makeup in your workforce that mirrored what the community was around you and and just about everyone who called me on that issue it didn't matter what their background was challenged it and the point was you need successful businesses and in order to run a successful business you need to hire the best person regardless of gender regardless of ethnicity regardless of race regardless of religion you hire the best person but that is not that is often not the way the situation is assessed by some predominantly on the left Steve I thank you for the call sir thank you have a great day all right Glenn in Hamilton hey Glenn how you doing good sir thank you for your call
2: yeah I just wanted to say that uh, my grandfather sacrificed six years of his life away from his family to fight for freedom and he said to me that freedom of speech is this he goes I may not agree with what you have to say but I will defend to the death your right to say it yes sir and I believe that it's also a gift it's something you need to give to others if you expect to have it for yourself
0: yeah look if you're Ikra Khalid and you're introducing M103 and M103's objective is to uh, to end the uh, um, you know the vilification of, uh, of Muslims and Islam and you're, and you're calling it Islamophobia, then please provide a definition of Islamophobia to go along with, M-103. And the cowardly response by the Conservative Party, which seemed to be, you know, we don't want to upset anybody because it could cost us votes. There has to be some real dialogue, and we're, not, we're really not getting it. We're not, we get the real dialogue. Thank you for the call, sir. We get the real dialogue on talk radio. But from the politicians, we know what they want. Who they want.
3: You're listening to the Roy Green Show, weekends from two to five on AM 900
0: CHML. Keto Maggie is the CEO of Mainstream Research, and I I remember Keto, you were the first polling company that called it correctly for the Liberals winning a majority government in 2015. Yes, yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah, you guys got it right. Everybody else was still sort of bouncing around on the fence and uh, getting splinters in their backsides, and you guys got it correctly. So. What's happening with the Conservative Party? You're, you've done the uh, the uh, polling for iPolitics. Uh, what's going on? Uh, would you speak to the three main polling questions and what they show?
2: Yeah, so while well, we've been polling uh, Conservative Party members uh, by using publicly available donor lists, um, we did this before in 2015 for the last PC leadership uh, when Patrick Brown ran against um, Christine Elliott, and we found that by... By matching donor records with phone directories, that we ended up being able to reach actual members. Because if you poll the general public, it's about one percent of the population that um, that joins a political party. It's it's almost impossible to get an accurate snapshot. So we've been polling uh, uh, donors from across the country, and, and starting in January 5th, we've been asking people about who are they, who will they vote for, who are they least likely to support. Uh, who's most likely to beat Justin Trudeau in, in the election in 2019? Um, so overall, first, uh, going back to we start on January 5th, we've been we've been polling ever since, uh, pretty much every day. So on the overall, uh, um, Kevin O'Leary is leading. Um, you know, the, the, this last week we saw a big surge from from Kelly Leach, which which is the uh, was the big uh, story on, um, on on iPolitics this week. And, and now uh, um, on the least likely to vote for um, uh, Kevin O'Leary has now taken a lead over Kelly Leach from the get-go from January 5th straight through to the first week of February. Kelly Leach was leading that, uh, that category from start to finish uh, two to one. And now Kevin O'Leary just in this last week has now taken over the lead and the least likely to, to, to support for among conservative party members. So that's a pretty dramatic shift and, and could signal a real turning point in um, in this election. It really is ha- looking more and more like a three-way race between, you know, Kevin O'Leary a pretty strong and consistent. Number one, Maxime Bernier, number two, Kelly Leach, uh, number three, but now in this last week, edging up in, into the second spot, we'll have to see if that holds for another week.
0: What about uh, the numbers of people? We've been hearing about people joining the Conservative Party just to derail Kelly Leitch or to derail Kevin O'Leary. I haven't heard a lot of talk about derailing Maxime Bernier. Are there enough people who are doing that that could uh, be sort of the uh, the joker in the deck?
2: You know, I, 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 we always hear about these things happening and and the possibility the, the reality is, is who's going to pay $15 and 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 give their name, phone number, and email address to a political party, um, uh, and 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 go through all that hassle just to to, to try to derail them? No, I, I yeah. really don't think it's possible. Yeah. At last count, you know, according to sources, uh, the, the membership said about 90,000 total. Um, and, you know, people are speculating that it'll reach about 150, somewhere between 150,000 and 200,000 members. So um, our total sample going back to January 5th, we now have uh, about 6,400 uh, members who have responded to our survey. And um, so we're getting a really, really good snapshot of what's going on. And we'll be continue polling right up until May 26th. Results are available exclusively every week. It updates on, on iPolitics.ca.
0: I have about 20 seconds. Uh, it doesn't seem as though there's a particular boost from having been a senior cabinet minister for uh, for Stephen Harper. I mean, you had Kelly Leach, she was a junior minister, and Maxim Bernier was a senior minister, but that was years ago. So no real bump for anybody who was a senior minister.
2: No, I think actually, if anything, <clears throat> it looks like those who were uh, furthest away from Stephen Harper in the last election are the ones who are doing uh, the best in this leadership. I think I think Canadian's kind of tired of Stephen Harper um, in the lead up to the last election. And so people who have some distance from him, um is is who people are looking at, right at least for now on on who they want to be the next leader.
0: Okay. Uh, so if I want to bet my Trump dollar on uh, on somebody, should I bet it on Kevin O'Leary? Right um, now I me mean today?
2: Uh, I don't know. It depends on the odds that you're getting. I guess uh, you <laughs> know I, I'm not a betting man, but uh, I uh, you'd have to get pretty good odds uh, on on any of those okay. top three. It's just too close right now.
0: All right, Keto, when you call it, I'll bet. thanks so much for the time. Thanks again, Roy. Always good talking to you. Keto Maggie from uh, Mainstream Research. Main Street Research.
3: You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: And now the the folks on the left are rolling over laughing. But, uh, you know, you should grab those handrails, you know, the ones that stop you from falling too hard and hurting yourself. Because while you're giggling... Rasmussen reports Rasmussen polling in the United States, so national polling by Rasmussen has found. Let me read it to you. Forty-five percent of Americans say the country is headed in the right direction. That compares to thirty percent a year ago. Gee, who was in who was in the White House then? Thirty uh, percent a year ago and is higher than any week during Barack Obama's entire eight-year. Presidency, 45% of Americans, compared to 30% a year ago. And you know, when it comes to the news conference that uh, President Trump held a couple of days ago, he was toying with the media, kind of like a lion toys with a giant ball of yarn but they're so focused and so fixated on their frustration and anger with Trump, they can't see it. They can't see it. They ask questions they know Donald Trump is going to verbally eviscerate them with in his own way. And the giggling is actually done by the people who voted for Donald Trump And if you look at this number from Rasmussen polling, 45%, let's think about it now 45% of Americans believe the country is headed in the right direction, 30% a a year ago, and that 45% is higher than any week when Barack Obama was in the White House over eight years. So, what that says, deductive reasoning here, is that if this trend continues, and I don't see why it shouldn't, because frankly, the idiots, who do what they were doing in Philadelphia last night. Kill the rich, kill the rich, kill the rich. Kill cops, kill whatever it was. And then one moron didn't know how to spell cops, and he wrote caps. I've often said, you know, some of these people, and particularly the trolls on on, on social media, they they can't spell cat if you spot them the C and the A. But these people who participate in these idiotic demonstrations where people get hurt, not legitimate protests, but the idiotic demonstrations where people get hurt, all they're going to do is solidify more votes for Donald Trump. And when the 2018 midterm elections roll around, there will be fewer Democrats in the Senate, and there will be fewer Democrats in the House, and the guy in the White House is still going to be Donald Trump. So it was about a year ago, it was last February that we started to really hear on this program a tremendous amount of interest in Donald Trump. There was a there was a visceral support for him. There was a, a sense of, yeah, we like this guy. We like we like his approach. We You may not, but we do. that, that was that's what we were hearing. And it grew and it grew and it grew. And each week, almost each week between, I guess, February and, and November, we spoke with Fran Coombs, the managing editor of Rasmussen Reports. Poor Fran didn't get any weekends off because of us. And, uh, and we heard from Fran how the polling was indicating that this, this shift toward Donald Trump was more than something that was a passing fad. It had roots and it was getting stronger. And we all know what happened on November the 8th. And our friend Fran Coombs is back with us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. I always felt like I should send you something, Fran.
4: Oh, that's all right, Roy. You know, I enjoy talking to you. And uh, when your listeners have called in, I've, it's, it's been
0: very enjoyable, very interesting. Well, good. Me, I'm, too. I'm glad. So this 45 percent believing the United States is headed in the right direction, that's significant, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And, and I might remind your
4: viewers that we were one of the top two pollsters in the country after the presidential race was over. We called the election right so if they have any doubts about our polling, uh, you know, we called it right when the others didn't. Right. Uh, but yes, we, we do this every week, Roy, and it's based on 500 voters five nights a week, so it's 2,500 voters. And uh, we ask them, is the country going in the right direction or is it on the wrong track? Uh, and like I said, we've been doing this for years. And the uh, highest it ever got any week during Obama's presidency was, I recall, was like maybe 41 or 42. Uh, now with Trump. It's been this is now the fourth week in a row uh, when it's been uh, the highest. It was 47 percent a couple weeks ago, 45, of course, as you just noted. So we'll find out again on Monday if that number is still holding up. But, uh, yes, it was 30 percent a year ago, and it is indeed higher than it ever was during Obama's presidency
0: with all of the anti-Trump frenzy this number and the fact that it's it's been higher than forty five percent and barack obama's never got to forty five percent that would startle that would surprise it would probably alarm and drive uh, a lot of people on the left and drive them back to their crying towels
4: right well a lot of it has to do with the fact that look when obama was elected and re-elected you didn't see all these protests but people were conservatives republicans were plenty unhappy with Ob- the obama presidency as you well know and as i'm sure many of your listeners know they just didn't take to the streets Where we saw it was in, for example, the right direction, that number was just minuscule. Uh, So a lot of those folks obviously now are very excited about the direction the country's going in. And that's shooting the number up. And the Democrats, obviously the Democrats are unhappy. uh, But believe it or not, they're not as happy as the Republicans were during the Obama years.
2: Um.
4: Let me I mean, just, but let you know. Let me just tell yeah, you. For yeah. example, sixty-nine percent of Republicans think the country's headed in the right direction. Only twenty-six percent of Democrats feel that way. Wow! Wow! Actually, okay. I take that back. Actually, the Democrats are now plunging down to the levels that. Uh, uh, but unaffiliated voters, while not as ecstatic as Republicans, are way up. Are up. Uh, and they were way down during the Obama years.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I would have expected, given what when I I watch MSNBC or I watch CNN, I would expect there to be a tremendous revolt within the Republican Party, and they would all be turning on Donald Trump. They'd all be plotting against him. They'd be looking for a special prosecutor and probably impeachment and then a a unanimous vote within the Senate and the House to get him out. But instead, the support from Republicans is strong, and the numbers, believing the country's headed in the right direction, the highest they've ever been the highest they've been certainly of the uh, higher than anything Barack Obama achieved, so that speaks volumes.
4: Right. Well, remember that when we we've polled about the media for years, and as Trump correctly noted uh, his press conference the other day, I mean the numbers for the media, favorables for media trust in the media is is down in the cellar. Uh, it's lower than the Congress. It's lower than it is for lawyers. So. Uh, the uh, people, people have felt that way about the media for years. In every major presidential election, even in the, in the off-year elections, the majority of voters always say, yeah, we expect the media to tilt toward the Democrats. Uh, we expect the media to tilt toward the Democratic candidate. So th- that, that's the way the public has felt about the media. I mean, even Democrats, when you ask them about media bias, they're obviously not as critical as Republicans, but they will... Knowledge that yes, the media is more likely to help the Democratic candidate than the Republican candidate. So these are folks that have very, very low uh, favorability ratings with the public in general. So is it any surprise when they come out now and they've made all these mistakes and they're so clearly hostile? Uh, is is it any any surprise that they're not gaining any ground because people already don't trust them and don't like
0: them? Exactly. And then you look at what happened uh, during the news conference this week. It really was so evident that the dislike for Donald Trump that the media have is so evident, it's so clear. So if you already don't trust them, this is only going to solidify that point of view. And then what I noticed, of course, and this isn't just this year, we see it time and again— Media people, particularly in the United States, uh, Russ. Although we're guilty of it in this country as well, they talk to each other. You turn on the TV, and there's a media person talking to another media person, right, right. trying to impress each other with how smart they are, and, and people on the uh, who are watching saying, "Oh, shut up."
4: Well, I mean, the, I was most amused by Chuck Todd of NBC. Oh, he's in a panic, after, saying after the uh, press conference that it was it was un-American, yeah. Trump to criticize the media that it was unhealthy it was un-american now this is a guy that i would say chakad was probably the number one shill and apologist for barack obama for eight years running no question i mean this guy this guy never asked an obama administration official or president obama a a hostile or negative question in eight years and yet you know but trump anything low enough that he can say about trump uh, there's no, and and yet this is the guy that's going to come out and pontificate and go, oh, it's unhealthy to criticize the uh, the media. It's un-American to criticize the media.
0: Your numbers this week will drive Chuck Todd into absolute panic. I hope so. No, no question. They will drive. Oh, guys, and, and, these
4: guys are, look, I've been I was in the news business for a long, long time, as you know, Roy. Yeah. And these people are destroying my business. They are destroying the media.
0: Right. You're right. It's, it's, You're it's, right. It's terrible. You're right because they're harming everybody else. Right, but they're they're dragging everybody else down to their level.
4: Lower the standards; they're bringing everybody down.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know what's what? What I find with Chuck Todd, and I don't want to be unnecessarily focusing on him, but why? You know, just for a moment, when he becomes panicked about how well Trump is doing, or how well conservative values or thoughts or or positions or ethics are doing, his head starts to he starts to revolve like a bobblehead doll. This, little things I pick up, it just, it's just his head starts to move in directions I didn't know the right. neck could support. Anyway. And I just thought, I mean,
4: what a whiner. What a whiner. I mean, I, you it know, is. I remember when reporters used to be hard hitting, tough people. I mean, they weren't one, oh, somebody criticized me. That's an American. Yeah, yeah, I mean, what yeah. a crybaby. I mean, and also, what do you expect? I mean, what do you expect? I mean, you've been a total shill. You're still a total shill for one side, and yet you have the huts by to complain that, uh, Uh, the complaint about somebody fighting back.
3: You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: Today, on behalf of President Trump, I bring you this assurance. The United States of America strongly supports NATO and will be unwavering in our commitment. The President of the United States expects our allies to keep their word, to fulfill this commitment, and for most, that means the time has come to do more. Well, the time has come to pay more. That's what uh, the Vice President of the United States is saying, and that's what the Secretary of Defense, uh, General Jim Mattis, told Canada and other NATO nations earlier in the week. And the Prime Minister has said, said in Germany, I read a little earlier today, he's being somewhat noncommittal about this, saying there are different ways that uh, countries contribute, and he also pointed out that Canada is... Restocking its military. I guess restocking is not the right word. It's not a shelf. Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network, the former commanding officer of Joint Task Force 2, Canada's National Counterterrorism Force. He's now president of Reticle, a premium niche security solutions company. Colonel Day, it's uh, always a privilege to speak with you. Thank you very much for taking the time.
3: Roy, pleasure to be with you and your listeners again on this Saturday.
0: What do you make of the Trump administration very clearly and very definitively pointing out, first of all, by the Secretary of Defense and now the vice president, uh, both of them in Europe, making the case to European NATO nations, I guess all NATO nations, you'd better pitch in, you'd better do what you said you would do, the agreement that we had in 2014, we want a percentage of your GDP delivered and, and contributed to NATO. What do you make of that?
3: Well, Roy, it's a, it's something that uh, we, we routinely hear and heard for many years from the uh, U.S. administration, in particular because they carry a significant burden there for for propping up NATO. So it, it's not uh, it's nothing new. It's something we hear every couple of years. And the reality is, when you look at it from a Canadian perspective, Canada contributes approximately six percent to the NATO budget. So it's not insignificant. By far, it's not the lion's share, but it is a fairly significant piece uh, of. of money and commitment that uh, that Canada is putting forth.
0: What is the uh, commitment to NATO? What does what, what it, it accomplish? What are we talking about? We are, we'll count the number of planes and ships uh, that you have and the numbers of troops you can make available. Is it definitive? Is it, a, is it a, uh, an exercise in, in counting the, uh, the assets that the country has?
3: Well, it's a, yes, it, it is. Obviously, if there are some hard numbers in terms of how many ships, brigades, aircraft are you putting into uh, defending Europe, so to speak. Um, but as well, there are those intangible uh, asks. So when you look at Canada, and this is where uh, Chief of Defence Staff John Vance is, is particularly adroit and understands this. When you look at what Canada did in Afghanistan, as compared to the rest of those NATO allies, we absolutely punched above our weight. We took a, a significantly higher disproportionate share of the casualties than a lot of our NATO allies. And uh, irrespective of the fact that they, you know, we may only be paying uh, 1% of GDP, Canada absolutely punches above its weight when it matters, and you don't have to look at the, uh, the Latvian deployment of a battle group. Canada's going to lead one of those four NATO battle groups. That's not to say we can't do more. We absolutely can do more, and in this country we should be doing more, but we are still doing a rather significant uh, chunk of the task at hand.
0: Colonel Day, I remember during the Afghanistan campaign, speaking quite regularly on the program with Major General Lewis McKenzie, And uh, General McKenzie pointed out time and again that our NATO allies were particularly adroit at uh, keeping their troops in Kabul and keeping them relatively safe and well-entertained, while our uh, Canadian forces and American forces, Australians and a few others, were up at the pointy end of the stick. And I would imagine uh, you were probably there with them.
3: Uh, Absolutely. And and that's my point. Um, When you look at Afghanistan in particular... Canada and Kandahar and across across Afghanistan, we punched well above our weight. We took on a very significant challenge in the south, which was Kandahar province. I would argue outside of the American contribution, the only ones that even came close was the British contribution in Helmand. So this is where I come back to the CDS, Jonathan Bant, when he talks about, uh, you know, it's more than just money, it's more than just boots. It's actually who's willing to share the risk and share the burden. And Canada often does that.
0: Let me go back to the maybe lack of contribution or lack of significant contribution from some NATO members in Afghanistan. Does this point to um, maybe a a lesser relevance of some countries in participating in NATO? Are we better off? I, I don't know if this is the correct way to phrase it. Would we be better off without a few of them?
3: well i would i would never want to say we would be better off without friends and allies but without a doubt some allies are difficult to work with it's just the nature of coalition operations so what what becomes interesting though is when you are seen to be sharing the burden sharing the risk taking casualties and doing your part or doing more than your part then you actually get a seat at the the big boys table so to speak you get to sit there your voice is heard and what you want as a nation Starts to be, uh, you know, it's on the agenda. If you're not one of those contributing nations, or you're a nation that has a whole bunch of caveats, then quite honestly, it's interesting that you're there, but your perspective is not really listened to.
0: It's interesting you say that because I recall you and I speaking about this very issue. You're bringing it up when we were talking about Mr. Trudeau having made the decision to remove the CF18s from uh, from the uh, the Syrian campaign, the Syrian coalition. And you said when you do that sort of thing, what you will end up eventually doing or the result will be that your partners your coalition partners and your, or your NATO partners or your allies over a period of time will start to look at you a little differently and when there's a meeting or where there's some high-level activity going on you may not be invited and if you are your voice is not going to be all that important
3: yeah, absolutely and it's, and it's just the, the nature of coalition operations so uh, when you look at NATO what people often forget is where is the western flank of NATO? People seem to think it's somewhere in western Europe. The reality is the United States has possessions and commitments in Asia. So if you look at NATO, the western flank of NATO isn't only Europe. It goes all the way across the Pacific, and a lot of people forget about that.
0: A lot of people, when they think of NATO, they think of Tom Clancy, and they think of uh, American jet fighters uh, trying to hold back Russian tanks or Soviet tanks. That's the the old model.
3: That, that is the old model, and when you when you look at what uh, you know Russia is doing these days, it is making NATO more relevant, because NATO arguably lost a little bit of its relevance in the, re- relevancy in the current 21st century uh, security uh, paradigm that we're living in. But as Russia continues to do some interesting things in Eastern Europe, then it is bringing NATO back to the fore as an alliance, as the preeminent alliance in, in the world, and certainly one of the, the most important ones for Canada. I would argue the only alliance more important than NATO from a Canadian perspective is NORAD and our relationship in defending North America with the United States. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: Colonel Steve Day is with us, a former commanding officer of JTF2, Joint Task Force 2, Canada's um, National Anti-Terrorism Group the uh, and uh, and Special Forces Unit. Colonel Day... We've talked about the issue of of, uh, of ISIS, and we've talked about the role that could be played by special forces um, from from allied countries, NATO countries, the coalition countries, and allowing special forces groups, small groups, to go and do what they do best, and that is to disrupt and cause problems and 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 and, and bring the uh, fight to to ISIS. But now we have uh, Mosul is under si- significant attack; that's going to fall. The prediction is, you would know far better than I, but the prediction I've read is that Raqqa is going to fall maybe before the end of the year. And that leaves ISIS with no caliphate, no um, no, no capital city, but still with a, a lot of followers and, and with a tremendous amount of anger and frustration and likely a call for increased terrorism. How do you see that all developing? Well,
3: well, you're right, Roy. As Mosul will undoubtedly be retaken, Raqqa and the rest of the uh, the terrain in and around northern Syria, northern Iraq. Um it's a challenge with Daesh, ISIL, ISIS, whatever you want to call it, is that it's an ideology. And so this ideology is just going to morph again. It'll turn into something new. It may find a new home somewhere else. But if we don't get serious about dealing with the long-term um, root drivers of this, it will just pop up somewhere else. So although we're going to win, there's no doubt in my mind we're going to win militarily on the ground because it's just the nature of uh, 21st century Western firepower, Western military uh, knowledge and, and uh, finesse and expertise but to solve this problem we got to solve some of these root causes across the middle east north africa and help these disenfranchised people and and sort of the governance problem so it's going to fall absolutely what are we going to do behind it otherwise we'll just keep playing whack a mole around the world
0: do you sense that there's the kind of commitment to do exactly what you said is necessary to to uh to to I guess do an end around on ISIS being effective. I, I've spoken in the past with uh, with a former executive officer to General David Petraeus, Peter Mansoor, and and his his frustration is that ISIS didn't need to exist because they basically had it destroyed when uh, d- during the uh, the surge, or at least had the the fundamentals, the, the the cornerstones for ISIS destroyed. Now they, of course, they they surfaced and became what they became. Uh, Is there the kind of political will to do what you know needs to be done?
3: Well, it's, it's a question of two things. Is there the political will and is there actually the knowledge at the political level to understand what needs to be done? And when we look across our Western liberal democracies, and whether it be Mr. Trump or Mr. Trudeau or a lot of these political leaders, they don't necessarily have the first idea about national security concerns or national security events. And so if you try to fix things, in four-year chunks, you can't possibly resolve a generational-type problem. So it's, it's, it is a question of political will, but it's also a question of having some uh, maybe foresight and knowledge in the West about how this is critical to our, our way of life. Is that like, let, Let's get in front of this thing and then come together, get rid of the bipartisan or become bipartisan on the issue and resolve it. And the partisan politics is what's hurting us in the long term on these issues.
0: Colonel Day, it's, it's frightening to hear you say this, because if we look at what's already happened as far as terrorist attacks are concerned and the lives they've claimed, and I know that uh, you know we hear the conventional wisdom that it's highly unlikely that you're going to find yourself as a victim of a terrorist attack, but but it's still, it is, it's, it's emotionally and psychologically challenging for people when these events take place. It's frustrating to hear and it's concerning to hear that our politicians may not have the they don't know the first thing, and they're not bothering to find out what needs to be done, or potentially that's the situation. That just opens the door for more trouble.
3: It, it does, and it also is a question of competing priorities. So in any, in any country, you've only got so many resources, and so much attention attention to devote to any given issue. And terrorism, although not an existential threat, you're right. It, it causes concern in individual Canadians, individual Westerners. Um, and going back to our, our topic off the top, If we want to talk about existential threats, we got an existential threat problem from either Russia, China, or North Korea. And if we've got leaders that can't wrap their mind around why we need to invest in defense, then not only can we not resolve the small problems like terrorism, there's no chance of resolving the big problems like a nuclear-armed North Korea with another leader that's uh, maybe not as um, stable as one would hope.
0: Yeah, and, and China putting a nuclear sub into the ocean, one a month. They're not doing that to take tourist stuff for a ride.
3: Absolutely. When you look at the aircraft carriers they're building, China is flexing its muscles, without a doubt, in the South China Sea, building, building islands or aircraft carriers out of sand, if you will. And it, these are challenging, PhD-level national security issues. And if we wait too long, there will be an irreversible momentum where we won't have an option. Right now we have options because, specifically, the United States is unequaled in global military power and force projection. But again, when you've got potentially some leaders that don't really understand the nuances of geopolitics, you can start walking yourself down some some dead-end streets.
0: Yeah. Colonel Day, there's a story that's been bothering a lot of people, and uh, that is that Canadian Forces um, members who find themselves, again, on the pointy end of the stick, they find themselves deployed to uh, to... Perform their duties, their sworn duties, in some of the most dangerous parts of the world, defined as the most dangerous parts of the world, and and these members of our forces had a tax deduction, an income tax deduction allowed, allowed them for for doing these terribly hazardous uh, this terribly hazardous work. That income tax deduction has been clawed back as some of these some of these places are no longer or no longer defined as being um, extremely dangerous, like. Parts of Iraq, and I can't understand that thinking, and and I, I'm very concerned for for the morale and the impact this has on uh, on uh, on our soldiers, on our men and women of the military. What do you say?
3: Well, no, you're you're right. This is certainly a morale issue, and they the hazard and hardship risk allowance, which is what we're talking about, there's a whole series of calculations about how you come up with whether an area is designated a special duty area, what the hardship and hazard and risk allowance should be for that area. And at the end of the day, if we look at our allies, again, the United States in particular, when they send a service person out of of the United States, um, it's tax-free. And why in this country we are so utterly tactical and small-minded in our thinking about these servicemen and service women is, is beyond me. It goes back to an under-resourced national security, national defense architecture. So when you're under-resourced, you got to find ways to cut costs, and this is this is one of the ramifications. We're just we're small-minded when it comes to what we're asking the Canadian forces and the men and women in the Canadian forces to do. It's it's utterly tactical.
0: Yeah, and when we have a prime minister who says. That his focus is on the middle class. That sounds like an election campaign waiting to happen. Well, forget about that and start concentrating on the men and the women and and uh, and, and, and the armed forces and, and what their needs are and provide them with some at least some some financial cover for the for the risks they take for this country for all of us. Uh,
3: absolutely, and and this is where I come back to some of the senior bureaucracy that live in the Ottawa bubble. They lose sight of what's actually going on out across this great nation of ours, or or more broadly across the world. They live in the Ottawa bubble, and they often lose sight of what's really important. And that, like you said, this is a morale issue. And morale is one of those things that give you that glue that binds together units to fight when required. And when you chip at morale, you cause other unintended consequences on the combat power side.
0: I have about 45 seconds, Colonel Day. The United States military has a new commander-in-chief, Donald Trump. Huge supporter of the military. What I've seen, they're very proud of him or like him because a lot of cheering going on when he's around. What's your assessment?
3: Well, I would, I would have to look at what uh, a number of the national security experts in the United States have been lining up to say um, against the, the president. I don't personally know the man. Um, I don't pretend to know the man. But don't forget, those uniforms that stand around him don't have a choice but to stand there and cheer. It's the same thing with Canada. When you put uniforms around a politician... The uniform there is there to support the government of uh, the government of the day.
0: Yeah. Well, I'll introduce you to Donald.
3: Yeah. No, I'm I'm okay with that. <laughs> Thank you.
0: He's he's lent me a 757 while he's the president.
3: Nice.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Colonel Dale. Always good talking to you.
3: Have a, have a great weekend, Roy, and the best of your listeners. Thank you. You're listening to the Roy Green Show. Weekends from two to five on AM 900 CHML. I want
2: to see an honest press. When I started off today by saying that it's so important to the public to get an honest press. The press, the public doesn't believe you people anymore. Now, maybe I had something to do with that. I don't know.
0: So there he is, President of the United States, uh, from his news conference on uh, Thursday. And there is also, it's just been released, is the Trump-Pence Make uh, America Great Again Committee 2016 Uh, That's their logo from 2016. And then there is the Mainstream Media Accountability Survey, which has just been released on Twitter. And uh, it's perfect timing because uh, Lisa, who does a marvelous job piloting the 747 while we're on the air, just was kind enough to bring in the, uh, the questions from the Mainstream Media Accountability Survey. And before I spring them on the beauties, let me say hello to... Most powerful woman in Canada, Catherine Swift at workingcanadians.ca. How's the dog?
5: Hi, Hi. going well. How's the pooch? Pooch is hopefully under control. She's getting incrementally better. I'm doing serious training. This afternoon, I also have my granddaughter, so <laughs> there could be all manner of noises coming. All right. Anyway, I hope not. My my son and his friend are looking after her right now. So
0: <laughs> Ritalin for both of them.
2: Yeah, we're drugging everybody. What can I say?
0: <laughs> Michelle Simpson, at Michelle Simpson on Twitter, former Liberal member of Parliament, Scarborough West, and former seatmate. To Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and I find myself, Michelle, periodically having to explain what seatmate to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau means.
6: Well, it's like an old school house, and we shared a desk. He wore the short pants, and uh, (laughs) (laughs) People,
5: just watch Question Period once, and you'll understand.
6: (laughs) Yes, yes.
5: (laughs) Those funny little seats they have in the House of Commons...
6: Oh, I know. They're just like the old-fashioned desks. Exactly. You know.
0: Yeah. Now, how does it how does it feel? How do people react the first day they walk in, and they they actually sit in those desks? Is there a sense of overwhelming importance? Is it intimidating? I guess different people would re- respond differently to the first time they actually go to their go to your desk.
6: Well, in my case, there was a, a certain degree of awe. You know. Like, this is the office. Like, I just arrived at the office for my first day. Then when I checked to see who my seatmate was, it was like, oh, Christ. (laughs) (laughs) I really wanted to soak it in and keep a low profile. (laughs) Well, you know, instead of, and I thought, every eye in the gallery will be on the lookout for uh, Justin and I'm sitting right beside him.
0: So, so, and how did that work out on the first day?
6: Well, that was that was kind of intimidating until I got to know him better. Right. You know, it was uh, an intimidating place to be. But no, I, for me, there was a sense of awe and a sense of being able to do something that very few Canadians would ever experience.
0: Did was there a sense from? I know I'm drifting off what we said we'd talk about, but was there a sense right away from Justin Trudeau that he had his eyes on the bigger prize? Michael Ignatieff was the leader of the party at the time, but Justin Trudeau clearly was the uh, the Dauphin in the wings.
6: Not not initially, because we just uh, had a leadership, we are off a of leadership, where we had elected Stephen Dion.
0: That, how did that work did, out for you? He,
6: Yeah, yeah, how did that work out for you? And then we were back into it with, you know, a tussle between Bob Ray, Michael Ignatius, you know, and uh, my sense wasn't, but once Michael went down, then you could see it emerge. They saw him as the white knight.
0: Yeah. Well, and here we are today with... um with Mr Trudeau as the prime minister and the foil for this program. Well, I mean if if he if he leaves I'll have to start working for a living. <laughs> hey, did you guys know, uh, guys? Did you guys know about the mainstream media accountability survey by the Trump Pence team?
5: No, actually I didn't. No, I didn't no, hear
0: about it. I, t- I just found about found out about it about an hour ago. And it was on uh, it was on Twitter. And uh, Lisa pointed out, printed out some of the, all of the questions. There are 25 of them. And uh, if you want to check it out, it's gop.com/mainstream. Oh God, it goes on forever. M- hyphen Media. Just go to gop.com. Just Google it. You can find, find it. I'm it. sure. Yeah. yeah. No, you don't know that. Don't send people on a wild goose chase. Then they'll get after me. They'll <laughs> <laughs> get after me. So here's question number 10. Do you believe that the media unfairly reported on President Trump's executive order temporarily restricting people entering our country from nations compromised by radical Islamic terrorism? Yes, no, no opinion, other, please specify. That's number 10. I just chose it at random. Do you believe that political correctness has created biased news coverage on both legal and illegal immigration and radical Islamic terrorism? Yes, no, no opinion, other, please specify. Uh, do you believe that the media wrongly attributes gun violence to Second Amendment rights? Let's see. What else we got here? Um, do you believe that contrary to what the media says, raising taxes does not create jobs? Uh, Lisa said to me, I don't know what that means and neither do I. Uh, do you think the media have been too far too quick to spread false stories about our movement Yes, no, no opinion. Other, please specify. I find that interesting about our movement. It is, isn't it? It really is a movement.
6: Yeah.
0: It really is. It's not. It's not the same old, same old. And so, what do you make of that? Are you guys going to jump on it?
5: Well, a couple of those questions. As somebody who used to write surveys all the time and be very careful about them being biased, a couple of those were leading questions. Just to be, you you think? To be fair about it. But, but, I'd, but I'd still be interested in seeing the results because, again, in my long period as head of, you know, Canadian Federation of Independent Business and dealt with the media very, very regularly for, you know, every day, usually several times, um, there's no question that, and not all, again, you can't paint everybody with the same brush, but boy, there were lots that had their point of view, and if you didn't back it up, you wouldn't be quoted in the article, which frankly was fine with me because <laughs> I didn't really care that much, but but, you know, it was clear, it, so, so often it was clear that they were fishing for something they wanted you to say, and if you didn't say it, well, have a nice day. And that, that, that's really unfortunate, because we depend so much on the media and, it, unfortunately, a lot of it is not reliable.
0: No, it isn't, particularly There's now. Company
5: company accepted, of course,
0: Roy. <laughs> well, thank you. But particularly now, in the U.S. media, the mainstream media has this hate on for Donald Trump. But they're yeah. not able to see straight, think straight, or hear straight, or sh- smell anything anymore. And it's like the New York Times had that, that, that headline story that they blasted and trumpeted, no pun intended, and other media jumped all over it, and the story was that the the, the Trump campaign had been in communication or with, uh, with Russian intel agencies during the election. On and on it went about seven paragraphs down, it, the same story read, of course, none of this can be corroborated. So yeah. what the heck are That's you writing like a, a story for then? Right? That's right. If you can't corroborate it, it's not a story. It's a hit piece. They're
6: just—they're just playing into Trump's hands. They are because he—he he is not believable anymore in a lot of people's minds.
0: Well, did you know so this, pe- Michelle? Did you—did you know this? We—we we spoke with. Um With uh, Fran Coombs, the managing editor of Rasmussen Reports, who was terrific to us and spent so much time during the election campaign and the primaries. With us, Rasmussen just polled last week, and they have 45% of Americans saying that they have faith and confidence in the future of the United States. Last year at this time, it was 30%. That was when Obama was in office. And that 45% that Donald Trump got, Barack Obama did not reach that 45% number in any week in his eight years in office.
6: Wow. How about Um, that? Because he really hasn't, he hasn't produced anything. He's made a lot of statements, signed executive orders. He said day one, day one, they would start construction on that wall. Well, that's gone by the wayside. And he said, I've kept every promise. Well, no, he really hasn't. He really and truly hasn't.
0: He's done a lot of things that aren't reported. I was mentioning earlier. I don't want to be his. I'm not the spokesman. I'm not the new Sean Spicer. Um, no. I don't want to goodness. be. I don't want to be on Saturday Night Live.
5: Thank goodness.
0: Huh? Could you see yeah. me up there? Actually, <laughs> yeah, I could. Be fun. Oh yeah, it would be. Oh yeah, it would be. So, but, uh, but, what did I say? What was I talking about? Oh God, I hate it when that You're happens.
6: You're not the Spicer.
0: No, no. Before that. Oh God, this is terrible. Anyway, carry on. It's come and it's gone. It had its moment and I didn't get it out in time. Yeah. So you're on on the hot seat now.
6: I just think that um, (laughs) he he really hasn't.
0: Oh, I know what I was going to tell you. I know what, but let me tell you quick before I forget. So thank you very much. There was a, it wasn't reported on, but as the media was just dissecting the news conference uh, and they were going bonkers over it, I switched to another channel. I forget which one it was. I don't think it has call letters. And there, was, uh, there were a group of West Virginia miners in their blue coveralls with their helmets on and their, their lights. And uh, standing beside them was West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin. And someone else was there. And Trump had just signed the paper. The president had just signed the papers to reactivate the, um, the, the coal, you know, the mining. And these miners walked over and they hugged him. And they thanked him. And Joe Manchin, the Democratic senator from West Virginia, said, God bless you, Mr. President. And as they were about to leave, Trump said, President said, no, 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 hold on, guys. You're not leaving that fast. I want each of you to the miners to come to the Oval Office. We're going to take pictures together. And I thought that's the kind of move that his media opponents will never show. And that's the kind of move that people expect and, 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 and would say, that's the Donald Trump I voted for.
5: Well, I did see on Twitter, I saw your tweet on that earlier today, Roy. Um, There was also uh, something on Twitter I saw today of him on the White House lawn with a couple of his grandchildren. And people were marveling that that was even reported (laughs) because it was a very, you know, nice picture. You know, Trump with his grandchildren walking across the lawn, holding hands, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Don't you get the feeling, though, Michelle, you would know about the frustration that's involved in when you have antagonistic relationships between media and government. At some point, I mean, they've just started out. They've got four years to coexist. At some point, doesn't there have to be a truce because you're all still Americans and you're still working for the benefit of the United States? I know when you're a reporter, you have a different responsibility than president, but they can't be at each other's throats for four consecutive years.
6: Oh, no, uh, You know what? It, it, after a month, it has become so tiresome, but it's not unlike. Uh, but it's not quite as bad as uh, Harper. He was found depressed in Canada. Very suspect.
5: Yeah, I was and, actually going to mention that example because
6: yeah, uh, the animosity so
5: stayed he at a pretty high he, level with Harper. Uh, at least. He wasn't that
6: the uh, he wasn't at war per se, but he shut them out and that didn't always work out so well for Well, in my view, I, that was I one agree. of the
5: biggest mistakes, because yep. the media will always have the last word, whether you like it yep. or not, and frankly, there's a way to handle the media, even if the vast majority of them, and there's no question, the majority of media lean left. I don't think there's any doubt about it, and one of my bugbears back, and I've said it before on your show, Roy, is that once, they, once all these newsrooms, and not all of them are union, but most of them are, Suddenly, there's a bias. And I've had reporters tell me that off the record, of course. They've said, no, our our reporting has definitely changed since we've become unionized. And that's a a crying shame because no, no group, no matter who they are, should have that influence on what is supposed to be a free press.
3: The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.